You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning, Cities Church. Great to be with you here this morning. I, uh, I love Sundays. It's my favorite day of the week. And uh, I, I say that sometimes, I say that often because I mean it wholeheartedly. I love coming here on Sundays and singing and worshiping the God that I love alongside of other people that love the God I love and see the big God that I see. I am, I love it. It's a joy to me. I love getting a chance to see new people step into membership and hear exhortations and be challenged. I am, I'm so humbled and I'm so thankful. God has been so kind to our church. Over the, last, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been traveling through the book of Galatians, the, the first few chapters, and we've seen this, a major problem with some of the churches in the province of Galatia. And the Apostle Paul has written this letter to rebuke them and to instruct them. The Galatians had defected away from the true gospel. The true gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and that we can be saved by faith in him. That's the true gospel. They had defected away from that, and they had decided to take a different path. They decided to embrace what this group called the Judaizers preached, this false gospel that says, yeah, you can start there. You can start with Jesus, but you have to eventually follow the law. You have to earn your way to complete your salvation. The Galatians were seemingly convinced that either either they could pull this off, they could do this, or maybe they were ignorant. Maybe they were unaware of what it would actually take to fulfill the law. They're in one of those two categories. But either way, Paul is saying this is nonsense. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot merit your way into the family of God. And here in chapter 3, Paul launches into an explanation as to why their ideology was so dangerous. Would you pray with me and then we'll go to the scripture together. Father in heaven, you're so kind to us. You have been so kind. Thank you that we get to gather here this morning in this building. I thank you for this letter written to the Galatians two millennia ago that is so rich and so helpful to us today. God, would you be pleased this morning to use this time to sanctify us, to mold us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And would you be pleased to glorify yourself through your word, I ask this morning. God, there are many of us across this room that love you. Many of us that love you. But God, I want to love you more. We want to love you more. Lord, would you use your word this morning as means of sanctification and means of inspiring us to love you more. May may we walk out of this building more in love with God than when we walked in. Would Would that be true for all of us here this morning, I ask? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be, and scroll over or flip over, if you're not already there, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Pastor Ryan just read it for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul here in this section starts 
with a very bold statement. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Whoa, that is a big statement. Because he knows that the Galatians are relying on the works of the law. He knows exactly who he's, who he's speaking to. He's saying, hey, y'all Galatians, you are under a curse because of your willingness to rely on the law for your salvation. And the basis for this statement that Paul makes comes from the book of Deuteronomy. He is quoting from the law. Look at the second half of verse 10. Paul says this, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Any person who does not do all of the things in the book of the law will be cursed. A hundred percent. There's no wiggle room. It's absolute perfection. That is the demand of the law. It's not just circumcision, not just a few diet, dietary laws. It's not just the Ten Commandments. No, it's all 613 commands and exhortations that are in the Old Testament. It's an impossible task. This is why it's so ridiculous to Paul that anyone would try to do this, because he recognizes this is an impossible thing. You have to also wonder, did they actually understand this, and did they understand the ramifications of what they had signed up for? Because if you don't fulfill all of the law, there's a bunch of curses waiting for you. Did they really, did they understand what they had gotten themselves into? The book of Deuteronomy describes these curses quite frankly, in, in a horrific and scary fashion. Like the thought of being subjected to the curses that are listed in Deuteronomy is frightening, absolutely frightening. In, in Deuteronomy 28, it says that your entire life will be cursed. Deuteronomy 28 verse 20 says that every single undertaking will be cursed. God will send confusion and frustration. Yikes. In Deuteronomy 28, from verses 21 to 27, it says that God will send pestilence, drought, the defeat of the, at the hands of the enemy, and be, at the hands of your enemy, and being eaten by wild beasts. The prophet Isaiah, or excuse me, Ezekiel, calls these the dreadful judgments, the four dreadful judgment, judgments. In verse 28 of Deuteronomy 28, God says that he will send madness and blindness and confusion to anyone who does not fulfill the law perfectly. And then starting in verse 29 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, all the way through 68, so we're going almost 40 verses, it's describing what it would be like to have your enemy plunder your nation, to come in and to conquer you. It's describing the horrors of being dragged away into exile and becoming slaves, which, if you know Old Testament history, would eventually happen to the Jewish people because of their inability to remain faithful to the law. Deuteronomy 28, that chapter is 68 verses long, and the bulk of it is describing curses. Quite frankly, it's kind of hard to read. It's hard to read Deuteronomy 28 without a lump in your throat. If, if, if you have any sense of compassion, this is hard to get through. I, I find it hard to get through. So if you say yes to relying on the law for your salvation, 
if you, if you say, yup, I'm going to rely on the law, I'm going to try to obey the law perfectly and earn my way to heaven. If that's what you say, you are also signing up for the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and your chances of success is 0%. So in essence, when you say yes to relying on the law, you are saying yes to Deuteronomy 28. Bring it on, curses. It doesn't seem like a wise move. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Right? This, this is why the Apostle Paul is going, I'm astonished. Why would you go down this road? This is insanity. Again, maybe they were ignorant of some of the curses. Maybe they didn't really know what they had gotten into. Or maybe that they were just really arrogant and they thought they could pull it off. They thought they could pull themselves up by the bootstraps and muster up enough self-control. And they could just get her done. Maybe that's what was going on in their heads. But they were, they were wrong. Because to sign up to say yes to the law is to commit to doing it perfectly, which is impossible. And that is not a shock because that's actually a large part of the reason why the law was given. One of the primary purposes for the law was to help us understand that we can't obey the law. That was, that was a part of it. This should not be a shock. The law was not given so that we would obey it perfectly and earn our way to heaven. The law was given so that we can recognize we can't do it on our own and that it would point us to a savior that was to come. The law has lots of great things about it. There's, the law is good. Side note, we live in a society with an American evangelicalism where the Old Testament is often spoken of like it's the, it's like the, the stepchild you don't want to know about. Or it's like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. That's how some American evangelicals think about the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is God's word, inspired, inerrant. It is good. There's lots of valuable things in the law we could highlight. It teaches us God's character and nature. The, the, the law points us to the attributes of God. It shows us his wrath, his grace, his mercy, his kindness. It reveals universal moral truths. The law gives us wisdom on how to navigate all sorts of situations. The law gives us a great, perfect picture of justice and righteousness. The law is good but it makes a very poor savior. The laws, the law is aimed at pointing us to a savior. One of the primary reasons it was given to us is not to save us, but to show us we need a savior. There, there are some people that think, listen, if I could just be good enough, if I could just do all the right stuff, all the religious stuff, then, then I can make it in. I can get my ticket to heaven. No, you can't. The law points to Jesus because we, we desperately need a savior. And let me give you a silly example. Let's say you're driving on the road, you're driving somewhere, you're going 90 miles an hour. It's pretty fast, right? In most parts of the industrialized world, you're breaking the law at that point. Maybe, maybe there's some places 90 miles an hour is acceptable, but in most parts of the Western world, industrialized places, you're breaking the law. You're going 90 miles an hour, it's pretty fast, okay? And let's say you think to yourself, listen, I know I'm going pretty fast right now, but I don't really know, like, I don't really know how bad this is. I don't know, like, I don't, I don't really know how far over the speed limit I am until I see a sign. 
I'm driving on a road and I see a sign and the sign helps me realize how bad I'm actually doing. Right? If I'm going 90 miles an hour and I see a sign that says school zone 15 miles an hour, I know this is really, really bad. I mean, I knew I was bad, but I didn't know I was that bad until the law was put in front of me. And I go, whoa, I'm way worse than I thought. That's the greatest purpose the law serves for us. Whenever we're tempted to think we might be able to pull it off on our own, we look into the law and go, I can't do it. I need someone to rescue me in this scenario. When we see the sign, we realize I am much more of a spiritual criminal than I could have ever realized. In the same way, we look at God's law and it helps us realize the depth of our own depravity. Again, this is why Paul is so shocked at the Galatians' willingness to rely on the works of the law. Look at verse, uh, verse 11 in chapter 3 with me. The Apostle Paul says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The Apostle Paul's like, guys, th this is obvious. Like, th this should be clear to you that you can't do this. It's evident. Side note, he uses the word justified here. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan talked about the word justified and unpacked it a bit. Pastor Jonathan said that, that the word saved and the word justified are similar. They're hinting at the same thing or referring to the same thing, although they're distinct metaphors. They, they, link, they, they kind of point back to the same thing. The word saved refers to being rescued from something bad. Right? And the illustration that Pastor Jonathan used was if you're, imagine you're in a building that's on fire, you're being saved or rescued from that. While the word justified is more of a legal term where you're being declared not guilty. Right? According to dictionary.com, very scholarly source, the English word justified means to declare innocent or to acquit. Imagine you're on trial. You're on trial for a crime. And the prosecutor is pointing out all these things that he said you did. And the jury examines the evidence and the jury comes back and says, actually, we're, we're, we think that guy is not guilty. We think that guy should not suffer the consequence of this crime. That's the declaration of justification. That person has then been justified. That's justification. You could also use uh, the term righteous or to be declared righteous can be used interchangeably with the term justification, right? Uh, two weeks or uh, back in the second week of the sermon series, Pastor Ryan unpacked the, the term righteous and then Max last week in our sermon also unpacked the word, the, the idea of righteousness a bit. If you missed those two sermons, I'd encourage you to go back, go to the website or go to the app and listen to those. They just was excellent uh, unpacking the Again, using the courtroom metaphor of being declared righteous, if I'm on trial and there's evidence being, being brought about how guilty I am and the jury examines the evidence and the jury says, actually, we, we don't think that this guy is guilty of this crime. We're going to declare him righteous. He is in right standing. That's what righteousness refers to in, that, in, in, in a forensic or a legal sense. It is, there's a right standing. The prosecutor is saying, no, you're in bad standing with the government. You're the villain. You're the criminal. And the jury says, no, we see no reason to hold this person accountable. We see no evidence that this person should be considered to be not in right standing with the law. No, no, we actually think he should go free. We're not going to hold any of these charges 
against him. To be justified or to be declared righteous, they go, they go hand in hand. Well, here in this passage, Paul is saying that the law clearly will not justify you. If you try to obey all the rules, it's not going to help you get declared righteous. It's not going to help you get justified. In fact, the law will do the opposite. The law is going to make it very clear to everyone how guilty you actually are. You're actually more guilty than you realize if you try to rely on the law. And Paul's saying, guys, this is evident. This is obvious. Important side note, very important side note. It's not just those that know the law, that have broken the law, that are under the curse of the law. Even if you've never read the law and you don't know what's in the law and you're not familiar with the law, you are still condemned by the law if you break the law. Like imagine if I'm driving down a road at 90 miles an hour and the the school zone sign gets knocked over so I can't see it. And I'm driving 90 miles an hour through a school zone and the police officer pulls me over. He goes, hey, you're going 90 miles an hour in a school zone. What's up with that? And I'm like, well, I didn't see a sign. He would say, there's enough evidence for you to know that what you were doing is bad. Like, did you see the kids diving out of your way back there? Like, did you, you didn't see that? You didn't see that there's a tiny little road there? You didn't see, no, you didn't see that. Oh, like there's enough evidence for you to know this is bad, even without a sign. So you're held accountable to that, even without the sign. This is the argument the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter one, when he says that all people are accountable, even though they've never heard the law, referring to people who've never heard the law, they are without excuse, Paul says, because the invisible attributes of God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In Romans 3.10, Paul says, the whole world is accountable to the law. In Romans 3.23, Paul says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains that we were in Adam, so the guilt in Adam is now on us. Adam's poisoned blood runs through our veins. Ephesians 1 says we were dead in our trespasses. Colossians says we were hostile toward God. Romans 5 says we were enemies of God. Even if you've never read the law, you are still on God's bad side. We are all sinners, those that have read the law and those that have not. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. Whether we've read the law or not, all of us have enough evidence to know that there is a God and all of us still choose to sin. The wrath of God is against us, all of us, whether you've read the law or not. But reading the law is immensely helpful because it helps us to see the depth of our own depravity and it points us to a savior. The law prophesies and foreshadows Jesus. When I examine the law, I don't think to myself, man, I really need a coach to to help coach me up so I can obey the law better. No, when I read the law, I think to myself, I am guilty. I am so guilty. I desperately need an advocate to go before the court of heaven and to plead my case, to beg the court for mercy. When I read the law, that's what I realize about myself. I am in need of an advocate. The good news is, church, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. 
Here's what the Bible says. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is our high priest and he makes intercession for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus is our mediator. He's the only mediator between God and man. And 1 John 2, 1 says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is our advocate going into the courtroom of heaven, representing us. He is our advocate. Praise be to God. But Jesus is not the advocate of every single human being. Jesus only is the advocate for one group of persons, one group of people. That's it. One, those who put faith in Jesus. Those who have not put faith in Jesus do not have an advocate before the Father. This is what Paul says here. Look at the second half of verse 11. He's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk. Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the key. God does not declare all people righteous. It's not what he does. He declares righteous those who put faith in Jesus. One of the most famous Bible verses, John 3.16 says this. This is Jesus speaking. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here in Galatians, Paul is saying, listen, it is by faith. And this idea of faith is not a new idea. I'm not just making this up on the fly. This has been the case for, for thousands of years, Paul is saying. Paul looks back to Abraham, and we, as we saw last week in Galatians 3, verse 6, like Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's like, this isn't a new thing I'm making up, this faith belief thing. This has always been the case. You guys are, are putting all this stock in circumcision. Listen, the guy who was the first one to be circumcised, let me tell you, circumcision, it's not what saved him. He believed God and he was counted as righteous before he was circumcised. Why would you guys look to the law or the, the, the symbol of the law, like circumcision, to think that that would save you? Paul's like, I'm not making this up. Faith is the key. When we believe, we are declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. We are no longer under the curses of the law. We are no longer condemned by the law. We are no longer on God's bad side. We're no longer on the naughty list. In the ledgers of heaven, we go from condemned to righteous. The charges against us have been dismissed in Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are declared not guilty. Praise be to God. Praise God. It's not obedience by the law. It's not how much good stuff you can do. It's not how much religious stuff you can do. It's not how much of a good person you can be. It's about your faith in Jesus. And so I just pause this morning and ask you to take inventory. Ask yourself honestly, have you put your faith in Christ? Have you done? If you've not, today is the day to do it. I exhort you. I challenge you. Put your faith in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Put your faith in him. The last thing that Paul talks about here is, is how Jesus did this. 
In verse 13, look at, look at verse 13 there with me. The apostle Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us and he suffered in our place. This, this quote here that Paul is utilizing here in verse 13 comes also from the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 21. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, we, we won't go there for the sake of time, but if you go there, there's some instructions to the, Jew, to the nation of Israel to uh, execute certain persons for various crimes and to hang their bodies from trees so that all could see. That was the idea. So that this person who had committed a, a disgusting crime was executed for it and now is hanging from a large piece of wood for all to see. So that everyone could walk by and say, that guy must be cursed. What he did must have been deplorable. What he did was disgusting. God cursed that man. That was the idea. And Paul is saying, that's what Jesus did. Jesus was also hung from a large piece of wood for all to see so that all, one, all who walked by would say, that man must have done something disgusting. That man must have done something deplorable. That man must be guilty of a horrible crime. That man must have been charged with awful things. And that would be the correct statement. Jesus was charged with horrendous, disgusting, deplorable things. Your sin and my sin. Jesus was charged with the sin of humanity. Very disgusting crimes. And he hung on a large piece of wood on a tree so that all could walk by and see and those of us who believe in Jesus can have confidence to know that our sin has been paid for because he hung on a tree like a cursed man would. We look to him, a man who was perfect and blameless and yet took on the curse so that we would not have to. As we see in Galatians 2.20, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. The idea of taking on the curse, I was thinking about this this week and I was reminded of a, a moment I had as a kid. I have a confession to make. I'm a nerd. It's capital N. My wife reminds me regularly. That's all right. And I was really, I was a, I was a pretty significant nerd as a kid too. Uh, I like loved learning and read and like just nerdy stuff. Not like, not like normal learning, but like weird stuff. Like I would ignore my homework to go learn weird stuff, right? Like I, like I, like a couple weeks ago, I spent an afternoon just reading about how much money Chick-fil-A makes because I was just interested and, and I just spent two hours doing that because um, I was just curious about, because I'm a nerd. And so I was uh, in the Philadelphia Public School District, uh, your report card was usually about, there was like 12 grades. And I'm like, I don't know what you get 12 grades for, like 12 uh, you know, whatever. And uh, it was like arithmetic and like language arts and reading and English. And those were separate. I don't know why, but that was the public school district in Philly at the time. And so there's all these things. And, um, and so there's my typical report card was like 
you know, like mostly A's with like maybe one or two B's. That was normal for me. And so I'd get like, you know, if I have like 12 grades, I'd have like maybe like nine or 10 A's and like two or three B's. And uh, I remember my dad would, you know, he would praise me and say, this is well done. But he almost always would say, you know, if you worked a little bit harder, Kenny, I think you could get straight A's. If you could just pull a little bit. And he was right. I occasionally would be lazy. And if I worked a little harder, I probably could have gotten there. And he would remind me of that. And I remember one day in fifth grade, I was, I brought home 11 A's and one B. I mean, I was really close. And I was like really excited. I'm like, my dad's going to like, this is it. This is the moment where I'm going to get some serious praise. And I, and I come home and my dad's holding my report card and Hmm. Interesting. Uh, did you see what Amanda did? Amanda was my younger sister in first grade. And I said, no, no, I'm not sure what she's, she's not relevant to this moment. This is, <laughs> this is when you tell me how great I am. I don't, I don't know. I don't, this is not, I'm not sure why she's relevant to this. My younger sister, Amanda had gotten straight A's, something I had not ever done at that point in my life. So she's already everyone's favorite. Now she has to steal my title as family brainiac. Anyway, it's not bitter about it 30 years later. Anyway, so I remember like thinking about this and being like frustrated, right? And be like, oh man, like I was outdone. And like, so I go down the street and I'm talking to a buddy of mine. I'll, I'll call him Ricky. And my friend Ricky says, he says, oh, he's like, man, he's like, I don't know what you're complaining about. Like I, most of my, my, my poker is like a bunch of C's and D's. And I was like, oh yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to be insensitive. You know, I was 10. Um, and so that's what you do when you're 10, you're insensitive. But I'll never forget this moment. Ricky's older sister uh, was also a, a straight A student. And he said to me something, I mean, I was, I'll never forget it. He said, I wish I could take my sister's report card and put my name over hers. I think then my mom would love me. I, I, I was shocked, I was 10 years old, I've never forgotten it. And he, he basically said, I, I wish we could swap report cards. That gives us a picture of actually what Jesus did for us. In the ledgers of heaven, we all have a spiritual report card. But for us, it's all F's. It's straight F's. Because we're, because we're totally depraved, meaning there's, sin has impacted every part of our life. And so we stand in the, in the courtroom of, of heaven or in the ledgers of heaven with a report card as straight F's. Jesus came to earth, God incarnate, lives a perfect life. His report card is straight A's. And Jesus makes us an offer. He says, if you will believe in me, I'll swap report cards with you. I'll give you the straight A's, put your name over it, and you can present it in the ledgers of heaven. And I'll take on the consequences of your failures. Let's swap. I'll give you mine, my righteousness. I'll take on your sin. Martin Luther, the great 16th century pastor theologian called this the wonderful exchange. It is a wonderful exchange, church. It is a wonderful exchange that Jesus says, I will become a curse and I will be hanged on the tree so that you don't have to. And there's a blessing waiting for us. Not only do we not suffer the curse, but there's benefits too. Look at verse 14, the last verse we'll look at together this morning. Paul says this. He says that Jesus became a curse. He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Through Jesus, we receive the blessing of Abraham. In last week's sermon, Max talked quite a bit about this, so I won't spend a lot of time. But we get to be called children of Abraham. We get to be in the family, Abraham's family. And that just so happens to be the family that God is in covenant with. That's the family that God has said, I'm going to bless that family. And if you believe in Jesus, you're in. Whether you are biologically descended from Abraham is not relevant. If you have faith in Jesus, you are adopted into the family. You are declared righteous. You are justified. You are declared not guilty. And God gives you his Holy Spirit. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to us. He, he indwells us. The Spirit fills us. The Spirit then uh, uh, comes around us. He strengthens us. He indwells us. He sanctifies us. He strengthens us. He guides us. He empowers us. He comforts us in all that we face. And we never have to face anything in this life alone. We have the promise of being justified after this life and having eternal life. And in this life, we have the Spirit of God to walk with us because of what Christ did for us. Not because of your obedience, not because of your behavior, not because of what you've done, but because of the actions of Jesus on your behalf. He loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus was hanged on a tree so we could be redeemed and rescued from the curse. We could be declared righteous. We could be justified. That we could be invited into God's family and that we would receive the promised Holy Spirit. Church, that is worth celebrating. Amen. And that's why we come to this table every week. To celebrate what Jesus did. That he took on the curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. We come to this table every single week to celebrate what Christ has done, to remind ourselves of what he did for us. In just a moment, pastors are going to come. We're going to serve you. Reminder, as the tray goes by, there's two cups there. You want to grab both of them out of the little hole there. The outside ring is grape juice. Everything else inside is wine. So the outside is grape juice. The inside is wine. And the bread is gluten-free. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate in this meal. Feel free to celebrate with us. However, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are not a genuine follower of Jesus, then I would encourage you to not participate in this meal. When the tray comes, just let it pass. But don't let the moment pass. Instead of taking communion with us this morning, take Christ instead. And if you have any questions about what that means, what that looks like, we'd love to talk to you about that. Come on up after the service. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Church, Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. Let's remember what he has done for us. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.